There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Hi everybody, this is Brett. Welcome back to the Essential School Sucks. This is number 17, Growing Without Schooling. This is one of my favorite conversations on the topic of alternative ed for many, many reasons. And I knew I needed to have it immediately after I ran across a man named Pat Ferenga in a documentary about unschooling and homeschooling called Class Dismissed. So Pat is the path back to some of the most revolutionary voices in the movement for alternative education in this discussion, I think he really does a fine job of giving us some of the history, the amazing thought, effort, deliberation, and community that was created around giving children educational freedom and helping more and more young people find the optimal individual environments for each of them to learn. Pat was a friend of the great John Holt, who wrote classics in this genre, such as How Children Learn and Why Children Fail. Ivan Ilyich, another friend of Pat's, who was credited with developing the term de-schooling that we've already talked about. And actually, at the very beginning of the conversation, we'll talk about another friendship Pat had with John Delgado, who you've heard about numerous times in this collection of shows so far. So for your purposes, though, today we will tell the story of a man who wanted to believe in the public schools, wanted to be a public school teacher, as a matter of fact. And when he first heard about alternatives to school, he thought these were crazy ideas. Fast forward, Pat is the parent of three adult unschooled children. So he is uh, quite a legend. And this was a conversation I was very proud to have with him back in 2018 about his journey from one place, the I believe in school and want to teach there, to the other. And that is, my children will be the opposite of schooled. They will be educated. If you want to learn more about how you can support the School Sucks Project, please visit the show notes for this episode. It also might be time that I suggest you go and poke around at schoolsucksproject.com if any of the terms that uh, are not being mentioned here for the first time, but will be mentioned here, unschooling, de-schooling, John Holt, Ivan Ilyich, Go to schoolsucksproject.com and start doing your own research. You can just go to the internet if you want, but I took like the best stuff from the internet on this subject and spent 12 years trying to put it all in one place. Please check out the resources drop-down menu in our main navigation bar. This is The Essential School Sucks, number 17, originally released November 14th, 2018, as podcast 586, Pat Ferenga, The Evolution of Unschooling. Thank you for listening and take care. At this point, many of you are probably already familiar with his work. He ran the Growing Without Schooling magazine started by John Holt from the time John died in the mid 80s until the year 2001. He is also the author of The Beginner's Guide to Homeschooling published in 1998 and Teach Your Own, The John Holt Book of Homeschooling published in 2003. 
Pat has been a central figure in the promotion of unschooling and alternative education and the explanation of those things since the 1980s. He has an absolutely incredible story that we barely scratched the surface of today, but I did at the end of this conversation invite him back on the show in the near future. I really enjoy every interview with Pat that I have heard. Uh, It always makes me happy to listen to him. And I think unless you are a real Grinch, you're going to have a similar experience with this podcast. So I'm really happy to be bringing it to you today. Uh, Pat was at one time uh, an aspiring school teacher. But then in the early 1980s, he encountered the ideas of John Holt. When he encountered a man named John Holt, who said, you're interested in being a teacher? Well, first, I'd like to tell you about some ideas I have. I am paraphrasing, but Pat will tell you that story in the show today. He worked closely with uh, John Holt, with Ivan Ilyich, who brought us the concept of de-schooling. He was friends with John Taylor Gatto. We're going to talk about that right at the beginning of the show. And he also offers a lot of wisdom through his own story of unschooling. He has three adult children who were all unschooled through most of their education. That's going to be a big portion of our discussion today as well. Without further ado, here is my absolutely delightful conversation and hopefully the first of many with Pat Ferenga. Thanks for listening, everybody, and take care. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. Pleasure to be here. I'm very, very excited. This is long overdue. I feel like there's so many things that we can talk about today. I wanted to start, though, before we get into your story. You know, I was doing a, a roundtable yesterday on the life and the legacy of John Taylor Gatto. As you know, he passed away last month. And I know you guys crossed paths several times, probably in the last couple decades. And I was just interested in your thoughts on his work his impact, uh, how it affected you and how you think he affected, you know, the larger conversation about Mm -hmm. not just schooling, but alternative learning. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. I think the, um, well, first of all, John and I were friends. I mean, we knew each other since 1991. Mm -hmm. And um, I uh, you know, had him speak at four conferences, three or four conferences that I, you know, that I put on with Growing Without Schooling in the 90s. Um, and one in, uh, I think it was 2003, the Learning in Our Own Way conference was uh, where he delivered his uh, Weapons of Mass Instruction mm-hmm. uh, talk. And um, then we started to lose touch um, as, uh, you know, he, he had strokes and, and whatnot. And um, although I, I tried to stay in touch with him as best I could then. But, you know, we also were invited often to speak at the same conference. For instance, we spoke at a, at a conference in Toronto and we wound up uh, sharing a room, another one in San Bernardino, another time in, in London. And every time we've had those opportunities, we always went, wound up finding some place to have a few drinks and talk for a few hours. And, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a great guy. I mean, what, what, what everyone thinks about John Gatto is, you know, his, his explosive rhetoric and his you know, knocking of schools and stuff. But I have all these memories of him also. Talking about movies, talking about books, talking about politics. I mean, you know, education, you know, we, we, while we did talk about it, it was only one of the topics. You know, it wasn't like the, the only thing we ever talked about. And I think that's why we, we were friends because, you know, he had so many uh, other interests, you know, besides you know, education, as do I, you know. 
So uh, we, we share that, and I, and we laughed a lot. I mean, John mm. was a very funny guy. I mean, he could be sarcastic as anything, but he also <laughs> had a had a, a natural wit, you know. And uh, and so we always enjoyed each other's company. And to try and put it in perspective, John Holt passed away in nineteen. Um, 83 or 84, I always get that confused. But um, uh, until then, and then after he passed away, like, um, friend, you know, pseudo friends like, like uh, Herb Cole or Jonathan Kozol would, would like say, oh, well, John was an okay guy and stuff, but he's got these crazy ideas about homeschooling and, and they never got on board with it. And, and no one except, a, 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 you know, Ivan Illich and, and, and his friends, uh, the Flying Circus of Villages, he's <laughs> like to call it. Right. Uh, they they got it, you know, and so it's so, and, and that was it. But then, you know, Illich was in Germany for six months of the year, then a Penn State another few months of the year. He traveled all over the place. So he, you know, he wasn't someone that I, I you know, myself or anyone had a chance to really talk with at length, except when when he was available. And then, and and then, out of the blue, in 1991, someone contacted me and said, "Did you see this speech uh, that the teacher of the year gave um, when he took his award? He called the school psychopathic, <laughs> and and he suggested that people homeschool if the schools don't get better." And I was like, "You're kidding me!" Now we didn't have the internet like like we do now, so you know, it took me a while to find this speech. It was called the psychopathic school. It was his acceptance speech for the New York City Teacher of the Year award. And after I read it, I, I called him up, <laughs> introduced myself, and he knew a little bit about John Holt. He was familiar with him. And um, next thing you know, you know, he was speaking at a conference that I was putting on that later that year. And then he invited me to speak at his conference, uh, this event that he called the, the first national grassroots speak out on school choice. Mm. And he rented Carnegie Hall for that. Oh, wow. And, uh, we uh, – I spoke at Carnegie Hall. It was, it was an incredible experience. You know, I was in a dressing room and I fantasized that the practice piano there was the one used by David Brubeck when they recorded Take Five at Carnegie Hall. It was uh, it was quite a, a moment. And John, you know, stage managed that whole thing. And it was this wide group of people. I mean, the Sudbury Valley Schools, the Albany Free School, a bunch of his students. I represented homeschooling. It was a real open and, – and the book uh, that he produced from that has all those those talks in there. And, you know, all the work that John did uh, with kids in school also is what attracted us uh, as homeschoolers. I mean, he was, John was giving homeschooling a validation that it hadn't had since John Holt passed away because most professional educators are like oh homeschooling <laughs> right know? yeah you know? but john didn't have that reservation because he understood that you know parents have the right to do this and and why not exercise it and he enjoyed seeing people do that and uh and that was a, a real shot in the arm and then when you hear that what john gatto actually told me in fact i'm sure he said this in public what he did in his classes was a tortured version of homeschooling because you know, yes. he had to run all this interference <laughs> to get the kids out of the class so they could do thing interesting things like sell their their um sweaters on, on the sidewalks of New York. <laughs> and uh, One of them, he got an internship at Marvel Comics and so on, you know? But, it's interesting, you know, too. It's like, uh, you know, you talk about him being just uh, familiar with John on the surface. And, and, you know, one of John Holt's recommendations was get kids out in the real world. And that's what he was actually doing. I mean, a lot of us who are younger, we first encounter Gatto anyway through some of his more provocative writing and criticism of the school and this revelatory history of the school and all the people who tried to the, – the interests that tried to shape public schooling through the 20th century. But then like if – our curiosity is peaked and we dig a little bit deeper and we find um, there's this great television special. I was talking about this yesterday, Classrooms of the Heart, 
where it basically shows him. It's a it's a local television piece, maybe 25 minutes long. Basically shows him. It's a couple months before he resigned too, so it's really you can see where this is going. He's sneaking kids out of the school to get them out into the real world, right? So that that tortured version of unschooling, I think that's mm-hmm. what you refer to it as. Yep. Yeah, you can yep. really really see it in this video, but it wasn't. I think it was like a couple of years into looking into his work before I found that. And I got to see what, okay, this is what learning is. You know, this is like, he talks about, you know, how schooling isn't learning for so many people in so many ways, but to then to actually see what his conception of it was and to see it in action was a pretty amazing thing. That's right. That's right. And John was also, like John Holt, an advocate for children, but for different reasons, I think. But one of the stories that, and I'm pretty sure John Gatto put this in a book towards the end of his life, but he talked about um, pulling the fire alarm to, to prevent the kids from having to take a state exam one time because he knew none of the kids were going to pass. None of them were prepared. Right, right, right. <laughs> so it was really an honor for me yesterday to be asked to be a part of this roundtable that was facilitated by a college history professor who has a podcast, and he's down in Florida. And he asked me and this uh, historian named Richard Grove to talk about, you know, John Gatto's work. Richard Grove actually produced a documentary in 2011 called The Ultimate History Lesson, where he talks to John just very stream of consciousness. Like, so the, you talk about the adventure of conversing with John. Yes. Rich would just ask these very, you know, simple, not pointed uh, questions, and they would open up into this amazing world of of discovery, like the, the depth of John's knowledge about so many things and the connections that he could make just, you know, prompted. I mean, I think Rich Rich had like a 50-page outline for, for this interview that he wanted to do. I don't know if they knew it was going to be six hours long, like a six-hour documentary film. But anyway, so the three of us are talking about this yesterday, and one of the reasons why I was honored to be involved is uh, this professor, C.J. Kilmer, saw us doing work that helps push John's message into the future. So that meant a lot to me, to be included in something like that, Um, this idea of carrying on important work. And uh, the timing of our conversation is interesting, because while you have a really interesting and inspiring story of your own, and we're going to talk about it today— you also took on a similar pursuit on a much grander scale, I think, than I have with the work of John Holt. So I wanted to talk to you about your own unschooling story. You have three girls. I think they're all like from 20 to mid-20s at this point. Oh, no. The oldest is 31. 31. Yeah, 31, 28, and 26. Okay. <laughs> I, I found a video where it said their ages, but the video was 15, 2015. So I just I added three years to all of their ages, but I guess that video was outdated information. Or too. my memory right now is wrong. <laughs> I know the twenty six. We just celebrated her birthday in October, so <laughs> she is twenty six. I know that. <laughs> so I really want to I want to ask you a very very open ended question that's going to talk about you know John Holt's influence on on you and how you know even though you're well known as an unschooling advocate and all three of your adult children were mostly unschooled, even though you, you've talked about like the door to school was open if they wanted to walk through it. And of course, if right. they wanted to walk back out of it, but you really embrace this with your children. But mm-hmm. there was a time in the early 1980s where you were reading a new book by John Holt called Teach Your Own mm-hmm. and saying, this is crazy. 
Yes. So <laughs> what I'm interested in, and you can you can take as much time with this as you want. I my audience will love the answer. What happened before that moment where you're sitting there with that book in your hand? And how did you go from that moment of thinking this was crazy to eventually embrace this? Wow, this is a huge question, <laughs> but uh, to, to eventually embracing those ideas with your own children. All right. Yeah. When I started work at Holt Associates, I was a volunteer. Mm -hmm. I volunteered there to learn word processing, which was a, a whole separate machine in those days. Mm. <laughs> right, know? right. Whole another skill. And um, it's to say I graduated college with a, a master's in English and they never talked about things like word processing or you know how to edit you know people's work other than what you see in, in a teacher do to your papers. Right. So uh, I thought this would be good, a good way to get in the publishing business. And John was actually on a three-month tour of Scandinavia at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I never met the man, you know, and I saw so at that at that point and I was reading the magazine, look at this stuff, just saying, well, I'm just here to learn word processing. You know? And then uh, when he came back, um, you know, he asked me uh, who I was and whatnot. We we, we met and uh, it turned out that that he was born in Manhattan. We shared this love of jazz. We were talking about music. It was a lovely conversation. And then he asked me, what do you, what do I want to do? You know? And I said, well, I want to be a teacher. And I hadn't read anything of his yet. And, uh, mm -hmm. and he just looked at me and he said, why? And I said, because I like working with children. And John took his eyeglasses off, looked me right in the eye and said, oh, Pat, you got it all wrong. If you become a teacher, you're not going to work with children. You're going to work on children. Yeah. And I was offended. I was like, that's not what teachers do. Oh, you know, I, I did, I did what, I, what, what I've experienced so many times in my own life since John passed away. It's just like people just get hurt when you, you suggest that, that there are other ways to teach other than sit down, shut up, and do as I say. And you're like in and, your early 20s at this point when you're having this interaction? That's right. I was a single man. I just moved from New York to Boston to be near my girlfriend who's now near my wife. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And I, I couldn't get a teaching job because the property rollback tax bill had passed here in 1981. And so they were firing teachers instead of hiring them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I really you know, got, got a, a good feeling of like the you know, how the cycles of funding for education go too. But you had you some know. emotional investment when you come in contact with these ideas. You already have some emotional investment in the idea of becoming a teacher yourself. That's right. Yeah. Because, and, and it's interesting to me in hindsight because I, I always go back to my high school experience you know, for, for the reason I want to be a teacher. And, and it turned out that I was in like the sweet spot for my, my school. It was called Fordham Prep. It's in the Bronx. And it was a very – and it still is a very conventional Jesuit high school. Mm -hmm. But during the period I was there in the mid seven, early 1971 to 75, they were experimenting and they had an open school. And so I got a taste of what it was like to choose your own curriculum and stuff. It wasn't nearly as free as unschooling, but it was certainly an awful lot freer than anything I'd experienced before then or since, you know, because college was much more rigid than that. They say, yeah, you could pick a few courses, but, you know, you got to make sure they all line up for the right credits. This was more like, oh, you're interested in uh, nuclear power? We'll figure out a way to help you uh, work with nuclear power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, so I kind of had that, you know, but already by the time I was a senior, they were they were cutting back on that. It was too, too many parents were saying the kids were not really learning, you know, right, right. <laughs> You know, so this the standard thing was no one has the patience. Everyone wants, you know, I, I taught you this on Monday. You should know it today, you know, right. Tuesday. You know, so I was kind of primed for these ideas, but they still didn't make sense to me. And I said everything to John, like, how are they going to get into college? And he just pulled back and said, have you read any of my books? <laughs> and, no. <laughs> and he said, well, 
please do. You know, try. You know, and and then we'll talk about it. He says, I'm not going to just start from scratch. And and he did that um, throughout his life. When when he was asked to speak at universities or homeschooling groups and stuff, he always asked them, "Are are you familiar with any of my work? Have you read any Ivan Illich?" You would take that as, as two. If you read these schoolings aside, okay, at least we have a, a common spot to start. You know, because he was, you know, these are hard conversations to have even today. You know, because people just think, oh, you just want to blow up the schools. You know, oh, sure. Yeah. And I think that by the time you encountered John Holt, like most of his writing was already done. I think he only wrote two books after that. Right. So if you're if you're right. talking about, um, you know, you're working on Teach Your Own. Yeah. He, he every he, the evolution of his work was pretty visible by then. Yes. But that's probably a tough first encounter with his ideas. Right. If you don't that's know right. his story of where he's coming from. That's right. And that's why when, when and I was literally unpacking the hardcover copies of Teacher Own in the office, I grabbed one and I couldn't understand. It just didn't make sense to me. So I remember saying to the office manager at the time, Peggy Durkee, what, you know, what should I do? I mean, I, I, I'm really having trouble to get my head around these ideas. And she said, read his first book, How Children Fail. Mm-hmm. Everything starts there, she said. And she was right. You know, and then, uh, you know, before John passed away, he revised his first two books, How Children Fail and How Children Learn. They've both been in print continuously since they came out. In fact, How Children Learn celebrated its 50th year in print in 2018. Um, and it, it's really, um, you know, interesting to me how once I started reading How Children Fail and he was talking about being a teacher and how he's going to respond to the students – then I understood better what he was getting about getting into about self-directed learning and how too much teaching becomes poison to curiosity. He said, you know, teaching is like medicine. It should be only using the right dose at the right time. Mm-hmm. And otherwise it becomes poison. <laughs> it's oh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you have what was one of the things that he said a lot of the the educational establishment hated, he kind of broke down this idea that learning was the result of instruction, right? That's and right. he said learning was the result of the activity of the learner. Exactly. Uh, it reminds, I, so I, still, I still have all these three by five index cards scattered all over my desk from yesterday. And I have one here about, um, since we were talking about Gatto, uh, when he gave, right around the time that you first uh, met him in 1991, he wrote that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, I quit, I think, you know? And he said something in there like, Oh, I have the card right here. Professional interest is served by making what is easy to do seem hard. He says in that letter that Socrates warned if teaching becomes a profession, you know, it will protect itself. It, most, of, most of the energy will, will, come, uh, will be used to protect the institution of the profession. So I think that it's obvious that Holt would have been perceived as a real threat to try to introduce this idea as a former teacher – saying, you know, what I learned is that this isn't about putting kids in a room and making them do things. The prerequisite for learning, like teaching can be helpful and teaching can be great, and I'm glad to be a teacher, but if that prerequisite of intrinsic motivation isn't there, we're kind of useless, and we need to admit that. Yeah. 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 And another thing, you know um, – you know, to, to, to sort of flesh out that idea about um, education, Illich pointed out, and, and this was, you know, in Deschooling Society, that, that book really 
changed John Holt's thinking a lot about mm. um, about education because um, he was a conventional reformer up in the, you know, testifying before Congress, organizing, you know, you know being in, in, in all the uh, protest marches and stuff. And then um, when he, you know, Illich made the point, you know, I mean, you know, John, John Gatto made the point that education protects itself. Which is true because there's, there's certainly a, I mean, my gosh, I mean, it's a billion dollar industry. I read, you know, I subscribe to Education Week and I'm amazed at how much advertising is in there. Mm-hmm. All go, I mean, it has very little to do with, you know, with, with the actual effort of teaching. It just seems like, you know, here's your choices of what to purchase. You know? Right, right. And, uh, and, you know, and, and so, you know, Illich made the point, the need for education feeds upon itself. It never ends now. You know, and so, you know, a BA, I mean, and we know this because when I was growing up, a high school degree was considered fine for finding work, but there was already this thing, no, you got to go to college. You know, it's, it's not really that good anymore. Mm-hmm. And now everyone is saying a BA isn't good enough, you know, that, that we need to go for, for postgraduate school and, for, you know, mandatory continuing education. If, you know, my God, I hope that never happens, but I could easily see it. Yeah. Know? So it's happening on this grand scale, but it's also happening on a smaller scale as well, where it's like, you know, people look at the failure of the school and they go, are the kids outside too much? Is that the problem? Is like two recesses too many? Like, you know, we had recess when I was in school. I was horrified to learn that my nieces and nephews don't. What if we made the school year longer? What if we uh, made the school day longer? So, yes, even though it's talking about piling um, higher and higher levels of education on as necessary, it's also like the amount of time, right? There needs to be more and Mm -hmm. more of the only possibility for a solution is more and more of this. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, Brett, exactly like you're saying, and we've extended the years mm-hmm. to two and a half. Now they're pushing. Yeah. There's an article in today's uh, education week about should we give kindergartners homework? <laughs> like, gosh, the, when, when does this pressure end? It starts earlier and earlier and it's extending. They, they really want to push it beyond 16, you know, to, to 18 or 21, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like whatever happened to the idea that we live and learn. That, you know, that it's part and parcel of our existence. We've completely taken the idea of education and turned it into a commodity that has to be purchased and, and, you know, throughout our lives, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and, you know, I don't mind paying for classes and stuff that I'm interested in, but like all this mandatory stuff, like, you know, and, and we all know, I mean, and this is one of the the great things that, that, that Holt always wrote about. You give the people a test on Friday, you know, they know the test was coming on Friday. They'll pass it. Give them the same test on Monday. Most of them will fail. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we all cra- we know this. I mean, look at you know, Princeton Review and all those SAT prep courses. That, that's what they're doing. Everyone forgets everything they, they learned after the test is over. You know, it's it, it's just it just becomes a charade of learning, which Holt wrote in 1964 about his classes in private schools. Well, this was my, you know, you mentioned Princeton Review. I mean, it, some of the most educational years of, of my life was doing that work as as a right. tutor, right? When I left classroom teaching, mm-hmm. I went to, you know, your area, greater Boston. I, I spent, you know, pretty much, it's it's also ironic that this is kind of like the birthplace of, of public school. I remember right? coming across a statue of Horace Mann when I was going to meet some student one day in maybe like Dedham, Massachusetts or uh, – uh, somewhere down there, but I was I was in the Needham area a lot, right? I remember teaching these SAT classes, and these kids were like AP level honors, Ivy League bound. Mm-hmm. I remember I had this group one day, 
And a kid got mad at me. I've told this story on my show before. He, he wasn't mad at me. He was frustrated and he kind of yelled at me. <laughs> about it. Yeah. Um, we were going through some of the higher level SAT math uh, questions. And it was like this multi-step problem, you know, and I would say to the kids, I'd say, look, this is just critical thinking, right? Like the mathematical operation that you might need for the hardest question on the SAT math section could be addition. The problem is you have to figure out that that's the operation you need to use. And there was this multi-step problem that required like, you know, some uh, like different concepts kind of blended together. And the kid goes, no one ever gave me a formula for how to do a problem like this, you know? And I said, exactly. Mm. I said, exactly. I started to actually see the SAT as a kind of opportunity to strengthen critical thinking skills that school had left underdeveloped. Right. Right. But mm -hmm. I eventually also, just to, to speak to what you're saying, became frustrated with that work because I felt like I was enforcing expectations that weren't the best for everybody. You know, like mm. you're done with 12th grade, time for 13th grade. You know, right. pull out 40 grand and get into 13th grade. Doesn't matter if you know what you want to do or not. Uh, this is mm -hmm. so I, I was not inviting people to question um, th this process. I was just like, this is, you know, you th it's granted that this is what you do next. I'm here to help you do that. Mm -hmm. Right. But mm -hmm. but uh, please go on. Go on with the story that just made me remember that experience. Um, where were we? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So we were talking about John Holt's impact on you as you get married, uh, have children of your own, and how you go from, you know, being kind of standoffish about, or at least incredulous about these ideas to right. your your embrace of these ideas. And we're in the right. middle of that process, I think. Okay. Yeah. And so what, when I was working with John, one of the things that um, – he wanted to do was have an open house every month. Um, uh, so homeschoolers can come and meet him and talk. Mm -hmm. And then he hoped also, um, just meet with one another. In fact, it got, it, it became popular. And there were times when John was speaking and wasn't there, but he insisted that we still have these open houses. And I remember, you know, the first few I went to were a little dicey for me. It was like, Oh, what are these people going to be like? Who are they? Cause I, I met a few homeschoolers when they come to visit the office and stuff and their children. And that was always a, a, a pleasant you know, short thing, but I wasn't, I wasn't sure I wasn't going to be like for two hours standing around in the office talking with folks. And it proved to be one of the most fascinating, you know, times of my life because I was having like, uh, apple pickers come down and preachers, um, you know, people, you know, um, environmentalists, uh, all sorts of people who wanted a homeschool is their issues were not being dealt with mm -hmm. in, in school and their, or their, ch or more likely their children were suffering. They weren't happy and they were looking for alternatives and they didn't care that John was an atheist. They, you know, they didn't care that, you know, that, that we were not a political organization. You know, we were just trying to help people get their kids out. Uh, you know, John's general idea which he said in a, an interview on the BBC uh, years ago, but always, I, I always thought it was a good summary of his work. He says he f felt that his mission in life was to figure out how to reintegrate children back into adult society. Mm -hmm. And once, you know, and that was a later revelation for him was he thought it was fixing the schools. Yeah. And then he eventually yeah. realized it's a bigger problem and that the schools can't get fixed until we come around to respecting children's abilities to learn. And 
you know, that's, you know, there's a vested interest, as John Gatto points out, in, in, in making sure that, you know, we treat children as if they can't learn unless they had these professional administrations. So it was early on in John Holt's career where he was using uh, the Underground Railroad phrase for no that wasn't that was later 1976 yeah in his book in the year before he founded grown without schooling magazine mm-hmm. see he was you know he was looking around how do we reintegrate children so he, he thought give them children's rights that didn't fly so he didn't give up after he wrote that book escape from childhood the needs and rights of children where yeah. he explores like if we get if we give them the exact same rights nothing new just what adults already enjoy what would it be like Boy, that that book infuriates liberals and conservatives to this day. <laughs> yeah, I've heard you say because you, you're in charge of uh, the publishing of these books today, right. and you've said that just about anything that he's written, uh, a publisher will say, yes, of course, John Holt, yes, well-respected mm-hmm. name in alternative education, let's publish it. But nobody wants to go near Escape from Childhood. No one, no one. And that's why I publish it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, print. you know, yeah. let's just tangent into that for a minute because it's interesting. Uh, you know Mike Mails? You ever come across uh, his I, work? I recognize the name. Who is he? He's a, he's a sociologist and he's been at work at least since the mid-90s on this very um, – the idea. What's it? Um, phobia, I think is the word. The fear oh, of children. Fear, fear, really? fear of uh, teenagers. I think that might oh. be specifically that. But he wrote a book in 1996 when I was finishing up high school called uh, The Scapegoat Generation, America's War on Adolescence. Uh-huh. So a lot of his work is sounding the alarm on the pathologizing and then through things like zero tolerance, the criminalizing of youth behavior, right? So mm-hmm. zero tolerance was new when I was finishing high school. You know, we're, we've had 20 years of it now. This idea, I think, is what John was addressing indirectly and maybe not mm-hmm. calling it by name. But if you think about if you just think about the idea, it's like present through at least all of American history. You know, it's present in in the Puritan life where curiosity of children could be a, a threat, like the sense of adventure or the need for enlightenment is a threat to, um, you know, the maintenance of that society. Uh, it appears, again, in the Industrial Revolution, I think, as as a way to funnel children into the workplace to give them order and structure. But then once, you know, they don't need child labor anymore, it's like, well, we got to get these kids out of this place. They shouldn't be in here because they're not safe here. You know, like not that this is an unsafe place for them. It's like, you know how kids are. We can't have we can't rely on them to do this kind of work. But then in the 1990s, you know, the influence of uh, rap music, youth crime. And then once you have an event like Columbine, that seems to be a confirmation of all of this pathologizing of youth behavior and and the need to criminalize youth behavior. So so this, this fear of children is always present, but for a variety of reasons. And it seems like it's it's almost like a politically useful tool, right? It can be inserted into different kinds of projects just based on this the subtlety of its existence all through our history. Mm-hmm. But yeah. maybe that's what you know the pushback about uh, Escape from Childhood was really about, or yeah. part of it. I, I think you're right. It's part of it. It's interesting. I mean, specifically the the comments that I keep hearing the most uh, against that book is John's. I you know that children should have the right to vote. Mm-hmm. You know and. That infuriates people when you bring them. Even even friends of mine who are who are diehard unschoolers, I'm surprised. Some of them just 
you know, you know, they they don't they don't want to go there. Why, you know, that 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 I, I can't see a child having that that level of competence, you know, which mm-hmm. is interesting, you know. So so there's that. But you know, I I just came out. In fact, this is, this is the proof copy of um GWS Volume Three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I've I've got up to uh, I think this goes to 1984. But I found in in here in one of the issues, I found a wonderful quote about uh, school from John that is only in here. So I want to read this out to you. I put it on the back cover. Um, a school is not an ideal. It is a social response to a difficult and wrong situation, a society which has no room and no use for children and which has few people who are glad or even willing to have them around. The ideal would be a society in which knowledge was widely available and freely shared and in which children were everywhere safe and welcome. I mean, he always had a nice, plain, straightforward way of describing the situation, you know. Right. <laughs> and uh, and so that that's what I'm, I I try to do in my work is to keep it as, as as plain and keep you know I mean everyone's got their their reasons for doing it, you know. But you can always help them with the practicalities of it, regardless of whether you agree with their reasons, you know. And that's why I think that um, the home you know unschooling has been growing over the years, you know, as as people are realizing um, it's very adaptable. It, it doesn't require you to to buy into any particular, you know, Montessori, Waldorf, uh, you know, ty- type of theory of, of education. It's like you work with your child. Well, you you watch your child, and then you go where they're leading, and keep them safe, and provide advice as, as, as and, and comfort as you need. And you know, yeah, sometimes they they wind up in Waldorf or Montessori schools because because that that makes sense to them, and, mm-hmm. you know, or they use those methods at home is really what I meant to say. Well, I've heard you talk about unschooling being uh, having the best prospects for scalability, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like in these in these other alternative school models, there's probably limited scalability. Like they tried to scale Summerhill, they, they're still trying to scale Sudbury. There's other things that have come up more recently, like like North Star. But right. if we and maybe it's not the best way to think about it, but if you think about it as competitors to the public school system, first of all, that's endlessly scalable because if somebody owns a house, they're paying for it, right? So there's right. always money coming in, and you know it's also uh, backed up by law. So um, the schools don't have a problem raising money to expand, the public schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is – uh, again, referencing something else you said, I think you called school the religion of the proletariat, right? Where there's – I don't recall that one, but <laughs> – yeah, I, I think you might have said it – my god. I'm, well, I'm glad you were here to correct the misquote if I made one. But the idea was yeah. – I, I think this was in the documentary um, – what was the documentary called? Five, oh, six the war years on ago. Kids? No, 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 no. This was just five – well, the war on kids was around the same time. I think it was called Class Dismissed. Oh, class dismissed. Yes, yes. And the idea you were presenting, even if I am misquoting you, was that people believe in school as a kind of salvation, right? We'll yes. just get an education, get this thing called an education, and that's the key. So, so you mm-hmm. might have been saying it tongue-in-cheek, yeah. but it was the idea, the, the widespread public idea that there's salvation in education, and education is synonymous with going into one of these buildings for however long it takes to come out with you know, some kind of documentation that says you were right. educated. So right. that pretty much relieves all scalability problems, right? Endless right. money— and this belief that this is right. a salvation. So it's hard now, to com- uh, compete with that. On the salvation that. thing, I'm trying to, you know, the proletariat, that's usually not a word I use. So I don't think I don't so. Right, right, right. But, you know, but I do I do often say, because it's a striking quote from Illich, that, you know, schools claim to do what schools claim to do what God himself, uh, what God cannot do, namely manipulate others for their own salvation. 
Tell me a little bit more about what you think he meant or why he said that. I think what Illich is getting at is that schools convince us that we can only be made full, made employable, or or be saved by going through through them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and um, we certainly see that a mind is a terrible thing to waste, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. That means you got to go to school, otherwise you're wasting your mind. You know, um, so so that's how I, ta- I I interpret that. So. Let's actually use that as a transition into talking about your your own family and your own unschooling experience as a, as a parent, because one of the things that you know, I, I talked to uh, Sandra Dodd. Do you know who she is? She was on my sure, show recently. Yeah. yeah, I almost named the episode "Stop Time." Now, my website is called School Sucks Project, and it's called that for a reason. But I almost named the episode with Sandra "Stop Telling Young People That School Sucks." Right? This idea of making school a kind of enemy in the minds of children or making school this forbidden place. So you're raising children through the 1990s, correctly, yeah. in Massachusetts. And you're in a place, uh, as I remember, like I grew up in New Hampshire and I worked a lot uh, in that area as a, as a teacher and a tutor. Not a lot of uh, homeschooling going on there, right? It could It could be initially fairly isolating. Maybe it changed over over the course of their childhoods. Mm. But initially, I know you said that you were pretty much the only people in your area who were who were doing this. Mm-hmm. Um now, kids couldn't be isolated from peers who went to school. So your children are interacting with uh, you know, kids who were going to school pretty much their entire lives, I would think. Yeah, one of the things that we wanted, you know, my wife was never fully on board with the homeschooling thing until a few years into it. Mm-hmm. Sure, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And unschooling in particular. So, um, you know, one of the ways that, that helped her get her head around trying this out was to swinging door between the home and our school. If the kids want to go, they have a good reason wanting to go, we'll let them. But I just want to be clear that they could always come out. And so she she agreed with that because the main thing that, that – we want to do with our children. And this is one of the things that school really, I mean, one of the things that um, really bothers me about school is that it, it just enforces conformity. Sure. It, you know, I mean, you know, you go along to get along, you know, and school re- you know, really teaches you that, you know, they, they say you have a choice of, but the choice is, do I do my homework or do I go to detention? These aren't really great choices, right? but we wanted to make sure our children had choices and got good at them because how many people like, you know, when I see all, all this stuff about helicopter parenting and kids, you know, with all this anxiety, it's just like, why is making choices so threatful for, for kids today? It's just like, so we felt, uh, although our main rationale for doing it is that we wanted our kids to get good at making choices. The only way they're going to get good is to make a bunch of choices and some of them will be bad and they'll realize that and so on. So we want to keep it as safe as possible, but really make them real choices. So when they said, want to go to school, we, we, we let them. Um, my, my uh, oldest daughter went, uh, wanted to try school out. And when we did get started, now see, I'm, I am lucky because at Holt Associates, I was the boss, and John always had volunteers bring their children to the office. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. so we had no problem bringing our children to the office and inviting our other employees to bring their children to the office. So we sort of made a little community just in the office. You know, yeah, yeah. and that spread out as volunteers and our, our kids met other kids and eventually met other homeschoolers. And and yeah, by the mid '90s, there was there were enough homeschoolers in our group that we were putting on plays and renting out theaters, and yeah, you know, we had maybe sixty 
families involved in that in that, those projects. So, so it, it it did scale up naturally over time. But we never wanted our children, and to this day, I, I really find that that it was very valuable for us not to say, "Oh, you don't want to talk to those kids in school because it's going to make you want to go to school." Sure, you know? right. And I know, and I understand that a lot of parents feel that way. But you know what? A lot of those kids who are in school, their parents want them talking to us because then they're asking their parents to homeschool them. <laughs> right. You I know? think the other thing, too, is the kind of otherizing, right? Like, oh, those school kids, it's not just that they're going to make school look enticing. They're, they're also might be like, well, that's not a good influence. Like, I, I worry about people setting that up for, for children as well. Like, just the importance of avoiding the adversarial relationship with school in the minds. I mean, we can have whatever kinds of attitudes about school we want, but uh, the, the importance of, and I think this is what you're speaking to, not setting up that adversarial relationship with school in the mind of a child, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, because a lot of that is our own baggage. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, I certainly have bad school experiences that I, that I carry with me, but I don't want that to go, go on my children. And I'm really lucky that, you know, my, my oldest daughter, she wanted to try sixth grade you know, because her, her best friend who was our next door, who is our next door neighbor, you know, was going to school and she and Heather wanted to do a science project together. And she thought it was going to be this great experience. And after she did it, she said, get me out of here. <laughs> you know? and so sixth grade was it. And then she homeschooled right through high school, mm -hmm. you know, uh, as opposed to, um, uh, my, um, my youngest daughter, she was, cause I'm, I'm looking out the window. I, I'm, I'm my, I'm on the third floor of my house. I could see what used to be the public schools just right around the corner from our house. Mm. Now it's a, an administrative building for Tufts university. So my, my kids always knew we saw the parade of buses and people coming in here every day, you know, and um, Audrey wanted to try it. So first grade, she goes in and the, within the second week, the teacher, her, her teacher, Miss wonderful lady, um, I can't remember her name, Miss Rapucci, she called my wife and I and said, you know, your daughter, Audrey knows how to count up to a hundred. She's spelling her name. She knows the alphabet and, and she's a very talkative, active child. And there is a lot of kids here who aren't, aren't up to that yet. Um, and I really can't give her the attention she wants. She might be better off being homeschooled. And she said that with Audrey <laughs> present, mm. you know, and so that really made a difference. So Audrey had no problem. Okay, I'll I'll go back to homeschooling. So, <laughs> so that was that was an interesting thing uh, encounter. And she unfortunately passed away. Um, and then uh, in third grade, uh, Audrey wanted to try it. Okay, so she goes in, and within a week, she and the teacher were butting heads and got so bad. We finally got a phone call from the principal, mm. and the principal, who of course knows us and the family situation, said. Um, we're calling you because Audrey asked me to call you to see if she could be homeschooled again. <laughs> right. So this is how many times in and out by age? That's twice now. Okay. Yeah. She did yep. one more time. Okay. She did one more time when she went in and out of fifth grade, you know, for a year. And then, and then that was it. And so, you know, and so when people think that, oh, it's either or, this is what I keep telling. It doesn't have to be either or. You know, there's, you know, you have the right to pull them in and out and, and schools know this. And, and especially if they know you're homeschooling them, that you're not like forcing them to work in a field somewhere, which mm -hmm. is against the law, <laughs> you know, that, you know, it's, it, it worked and it worked for us. And I think it could work for more, but yeah, this, this idea that we, we must be separate from the schoolers and that we're not in the same boat and there's, you know, never the twain shall meet. I, I don't agree with that at all. I think that we really, really need to give our kids, you know, the strength to make choices and to see why 
going to school may be a good choice at some point. If they want to, you know, my daughter wanted to be a, a, a social worker. She couldn't get a license without going to, to a social work program. So she, she did a graduate program in it, you know. Now, unfortunately, she, <laughs> she's not a social worker anymore. She burned out at that, and she's a yoga instructor, which costs a lot less to get certified in. But <laughs> that's another story. So how did your close contact with the ideas of John Holt inform your creation of a homeschooling environment? Again, a big question. Three kids over, you know, a period of 12, 15 years each. Sure. Right. Um, but I'm sure there were some things about, you know, his message that were really, really impactful that were sort of mm -hmm. ever present in that environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, w one of the things that, that really is remarkable to me is that you have to have time. And we don't have a lot of time. We are, mm -hmm. you know, the technology and 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 the rush, the go 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 attitude that 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 you know we have here in America in particular, but most industrial societies, you know, you know, we're on this conveyor belt of progress, and we must keep making money and keep building things and never stop. Blah blah blah. Well, one of the things that I, that I learned is that homeschooling gives you the opportunity to stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to take to take stock, you know. I mean, and, and this was a this was really hard for my wife to get in, involved in uh, to understand because she was a, she was in the military. Her dad was uh, served in Vietnam. He was a colonel. You know, I mean, you know, she had a real regimented life and she lived all around the world traveling. So she was always used to you know having schedules and and being places and stuff and that other people have determined for you. Yeah, you know? yeah, sure. And it's like all of a sudden. The five of us are, are home and we can make our own schedule. They could come to work with me and my wife or, or I could work at home when my wife goes to the office that day or I could just – if I don't – if I'm able to, I could you know, take the time off and just you – know, you know. for instance, one of the, one of the – I've always had a hobby of, of doing magic and mm -hmm. my, youngest, mm -hmm. my youngest child wanted um, to have a magic club. She, she, she went through a period where she was really into it and she was getting pretty good with sleight of hand. So for three years, we ran the stage and parlor magic club in my house. And it, it got so big. We had one point we had 20 children coming. Here. <laughs> it was, a, it was a guess and I loved it. And, and to this day, I, I bump into some of them when they're grown and they tell me about, you know, they still remember how much fun we had and, and stuff, you know, as we go around and we perform for, you know, the homeschoolers fairs and old folks homes and stuff. It was, you know, and again, but that just took time. It wasn't like, oh, what do you want to do today? Oh, let's do a magic club, dad. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, and that's when you realize, and then reading, it's like, you know, my wife was always up worried about reading. And so in, in, um, uh, one of his books, I think it's learning all the time. John talks about using, you know, just post-it notes to make flashcards. Again, you don't need, I mean, you could spend thousands of dollars on these phonics curriculums and stuff, you know, but really it's not necessary, you know? So using post-it notes as, as flashcards, our, our oldest daughter learned to read by third grade, just like you're supposed to. Our second daughter, she couldn't learn to read that way because she had meningitis as a child. And mm. so she, you know, the look say method was the only thing that worked for her because speaking phonically was very difficult for her. She had some apraxia from her uh, meningitis. So, um, the look same method, and so my wife, and so I'm saying to my wife, see, John Holt is right. I mean, children learn in a variety of ways. It's not just whole language or phonics. It's sort of a blend, and you got to be flexible with all this stuff. And you know what was going on this whole time? Our daughter Audrey was teaching herself to read. She mm. was picking it up from being read to by us and her sisters, because really, all of a sudden, she was five and she was reading independently. And my wife were like. Did you teach her? <laughs> I didn't do anything. 
So, you know, I saw it with my own eyes, you know, it's like, you know, this rigidity of, of education, oh, it must be whole language, or it must all be phonics, and it must follow this certain type of, of pattern, you know? Yeah. And, and then, you know, and sure enough, there's a child that taught herself, you know? And, you know, when I look back, I mean, I taught myself how to play the piano. Yeah. I got a yeah. lot better when I took lessons as an adult, but... That does, you know. I think maybe if I had lessons earlier, it would have ruined my enjoyment of the piano, and I wouldn't wouldn't have taken lessons later. You know, uh, but, which uh, one of your girls learned to read from uh, Legend of Zelda? Oh, that was that was my middle daughter, the one who had uh, the apraxia. Mm-hmm. You know, Be, you know, she was always asking me to read the the, the captions, and one day I just said, "I don't have to die." <laughs> so she just put her mind to it and figured it out. <laughs> That's a very cool story. You know, you talked about being able to slow down, right? And this was one of the things that really drove me to look for something else, some other kind of way of learning, because I believed when I was I was certainly getting disheartened and certainly growing very skeptical of school when I was doing this work as a teacher and a tutor. But by 2006, I'm watching these kids that are told they're achieving, that are told they're smart, that are told they're on a path to success. And every half hour of their lives were entirely managed for them by some by somebody else, right? Through the school day to extracurricular activities to you have Brett the tutor from three to five, and then you'll do homework from five to 7.30, and then you'll eat dinner. And, and it was like the removal of all choice from their lives. Right. And I started to to see it as you know, not only heartbreaking, but kind of a scary thing, right? That people were growing accustomed to a life without choice, right? And, yes. when, and when do they train themselves or how do they train themselves out of that as adults or do they ever do it? And, you know, the mm-hmm. cost for me when this kind of forced me to reflect on my own experience as a student, even though I was certainly not an overachiever, but a lot of my life and a lot of my time was very managed, um, you know, by school and by parents, um, I didn't know much about myself, right? When I'm Mm -hmm. making this huge investment in college and, um, you know, deciding what I'm going to do with my life, I I didn't have a lot of self-knowledge. I had never been invited to engage in a process of conscious living, you know, the kind of thing Mm -hmm. that actually leads to Mm -hmm. self-knowledge, and I think that, you know, the stories that I've heard about people who embrace unschooling and, you know, Sandra Dodd was just talking about the volume of choices that exist in that kind of world from moment to moment is what opens up the opportunity for people to know themselves from a very mm-hmm. early age. Yeah, having that time. There, there is my friend Milvin McDonald and um, Sophia Sage uh, are, are pushing slow homeschooling. Mm. They're picking it up from you know the years ago. There was a slow cooking movement and slow eating movement, and they're saying slow homeschooling. We got to all slow down here. What are the uh, the principles of slow homeschooling? Well, one of the things that 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 they do is uh, they organize local groups to get together, and the only thing is that, and I hope I'm getting this right. Um, they, if you, when you join the group, you have to commit to wanting to put on or do put on an event or do something. You know, mm-hmm. for the group, and suggest what that would be, and then talk it talk it out. So it, you know, it's more of a, uh, and that that's in a group. And then it, it, when, when you read Milva's blog, I mean, she's she's talking about just let the kids read all day, let them relax. You know, take it slow. You know, yeah, you've got things to do later in the day, so take a slow morning. Then then you're gonna have a hectic afternoon. You know, because. Uh, 
some homeschooling families are, you know, they might as well be in school the, the way they're so, they're so uptight and pushing and, and, and going because, you know, they, they feel like, you know, again, like, you know, this idea that you're not learning unless you're producing something that can be judged, mm. you know, but you can't look in someone's head and see how much knowledge they're getting. You know, even standardized tests we know aren't showing that. It's all it's all a, a, a weird game we play to think that we can figure out who the smartest is by just giving them a test score. Right. You know, um, so. So, yeah. So slow homeschooling is, is I think, uh, an, an idea that that's that, that will slowly take place. I mean, take hold, I hope, you know. But again, like you were making the point about how the need for education is so ingrained in people, you know, that that they willingly, you know, forget, uh, I mean, willingly submit to all, all these requirements to, to take courses or, or, you know, pay this, you know, this fee to get the certification, you know, we, we have to step back. It's like, when, when does this, when is all that going to, going to change? Because that's not serving us, you know, that's serving the bureaucracy, you know, right. uh, of, of whoever is, is the permit perm, permitter. Right. Know? Right. So, uh, one of the things that I really enjoy about, you know, being part of the alternative, um, home world of education and homeschooling and unschooling in particular is how people are, are finding, you know, we're not trying, I don't think you're going to be able to rebuild the schools and, or, or fix them from within, you know, I think that that you know we just need to show other options and let people gradually move towards them. I, I was just recently um, talking to a friend about you know she wanted you know to to abolish compulsory school laws, thinking that oh that's that that'll solve so many problems getting rid of them. And you know I, I really pushed back on her because she thought John Holt you know because she was reading selectively from like Escape from Childhood and mm -hmm. Freedom and Beyond where he's taught yeah John always says compulsory school laws are the worst thing that we've ever come up with for children and blah 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 but he also changed his opinion about about them very early and by by the uh, 1976 the uh, New York Times asked him to write a, an article about abolishing compulsory school laws. And he said he wouldn't because the, it makes no sense. He said, I'll write an article about how we've internalized the need for education that you could abolish compulsory school laws and everyone's still going to send their kids to school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we see that, you know, I mean, you don't have to go to school after 16. You don't have to go to school before five. There's a rush to do it. And in fact, you know, in Teach Your Own, John pointed out um, that I think it was Mississippi or Missouri didn't even have uh, federal uh, the compu compulsory school laws was they didn't want to receive federal funds that would then force them to segregate the schools and so and so on, but they still were able to maintain they had state laws and people had no problem sending their kids to school then you know <laughs> and, right. and, and filling them, so you know we really have internalized this need for school and 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 more importantly the need to buy education, you know I mean whereas you know. So many. I mean, Brian Ray is a homeschool researcher, and I and for years he's been you know studying how much families spend on 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 homeschooling, and I believe the number now is up to six hundred dollars. The average is six hundred dollars per child per year. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that's because you know, I, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, we're we're looking for experiences for our children. We're looking for other people and other things for them to do, and very often that involves public facilities or or facilities that friends and you share. I mean, the Commonwealth. I love that Commonwealth idea, you know, and, and unschoolers and, and homeschoolers are developing an educational Commonwealth. I mean, we all know who the, you know, the friendly librarians are and, you know, what, you know, which farms, you know, let you, you pick them, you know, bring your kids during school hours and, uh, you know, to pick fruit and do stuff, you know, I mean, there, there's a, you know, 
that wasn't a good example, but you know, there's a network that that, that people share, and and some sometimes it's most of the time it's informal, you know. Right. Have you seen? I, I'd be because you did this like through the growth of the age of information as a, an unschooling family. Yes. Did you ever see the cost go down? Like I would think as people could network better, as people could pool their resources, as information became more freely available and you didn't need to send away for VHSs and stuff right. like that, that you would actually see like, oh, wow, we are uh, saving money, you know, here in 1998 compared to what right. we were doing in 1993. Right. Well, you know, the, the problem is the Internet costs money. Yeah. You know? And, and, you know, funny you say this because I was just talking about, you know, cord cutting the other, other night. I mean, we're looking at our cable bill. I mean, when we started, I think in the 90s was forty nine ninety nine for a mm -hmm. triple play package. Yep. Now it's like $200 a month once you add on all the fees and additional charges. Sure. You know, so, I mean, those costs and, and you know, there used to be, I mean, there's still there still are a lot of inexpensive opportunities. Um, and, and I. But but yeah, Brett, your point is, is really interesting. Why hasn't the cost gone down even more? You know, it, it's interesting. I'll never forget. Um, I was at a conference in Washington D.C. in the mid '90s, and this man, his name was Ed Dwar, D O. ER, I think is how, or two R's. And he was representing a teacher's union and he was very nice, you know, but, you know, he got up and just pointed out, oh, homeschooling is, you know, just not scalable. It can't work. And his example was, they're not going to be able to get the, the discounts that schools get on textbooks and food. Mm. And, you know, and again, like he was thinking, and, and I couldn't quite get, get my response to, to address it because, I mean, he was coming at it like, you know, in order to be legit, we had to fully replace the schools. <laughs> with economies of scale and all that yeah 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 and, and you know and so i was trying to you know point out that it's you know the scale our scale of time frame is a lot longer than yours and and i don't want people to be forced into homeschooling the way you force them into <laughs> in school i want people to come to it you know because it makes sense and it works for them it's just an option you know i mean it's not meant to be a uh uh, a school, <laughs> a mm -hmm. compulsory right, school. Right. And then sure enough, like within, I don't know, three or four years after that conference in the late 90s, some guy had opened the, the homeschool discount warehouse where like he was using the power of the internet to get huge discounts on textbooks and food and all these other things for homeschoolers. Mm -hmm. So even there, you know, it's an example of, of, of how technology could help. But I've still, you know, I think a lot of people think that homeschooling is expensive because of the time the, of losing a salary of the two income family. Sure. Um, you know, um, and then they get put off. Like when you, when you read like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Elon, um, Musk and you know, the Tesla guy, you mm -hmm. know, he got some publicity a couple of years ago because he claimed to have created an unschooling school. Mm -hmm. It costs $40,000 a year. <laughs> you know? uh, sure. And uh, couple that with the fact that, you know, uh, in a lot of um, the, the good public school districts, they're, you know, raking in $20,000 a year per student, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if people equate school with education – uh, or, you know, school with learning, and they see that price tag on it, that could be pretty intimidating, I think, as well. Right. So right. I wanted to – you have time for one more question. I want to be respectful sure. of your time. All right, because it, it kind of leads into, um, you know, you, you talking about outreach or getting mm -hmm. these ideas to more people. And I think about this a lot. So with John Holt, GWS, right, .com, yes. which is now sort of the form of the magazine, Right. As well, a, yeah, all, all the issues of the magazine are up there. Are, are there now. So obviously you guys have had conversations like, how do we get more eyes in front of this, right? Mm -hmm. I've been doing the same project for the last year with SchoolSucksProject.com. And, you know, 
if you have a website about like, here's how you get in shape, or this is a website about makeup, or this is a website about meeting women, or this is a website about, you know, a business opportunity. Most of these endeavors have a pretty straightforward formula as far as the keywords you should use to attract attention. And I said, well, this should be pretty easy to figure out how to get more eyes on SchoolSucksProject.com. Then this debate begins about homeschooling, unschooling, de-schooling. Mm -hmm. And it was a little bit discouraging to see what the search volumes for some of these things were, like how low they mm -hmm. were. But also, you know, I went through this, this really idealistic phase with what I was doing. It was like, we're not going to say unschooling because it has school in it. And, you know, right. I still think, I think um, the person who first taught me this was um, uh, Laurette Lynn, who's... Oh, uh, I know her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I did a podcast with her. Yeah. And she's yeah. great. And she said to me, you know, don't, only school can do school. So take school out. And I like that, right? So I, I, I stuck to that. But then I said, hmm, well, if I'm calling this home education and people are searching for unschooling, there's an unbuilt bridge between you know, what I have and that need or that investigation right. that people are doing. So I've had to figure out compromises that I can make to attract more people to what we're doing. But because you, know, you first encountered this work now almost 40 years ago, right, in the early 80s, right. and you've accrued a lot of wisdom in that time, I wanted to get your uh, your thoughts on some of the language that we use. Um, words like mm -hmm. unschooling and de-schooling, but also the word education and educate or those terms. So mm -hmm. why don't we start with unschooling? How do you feel about that term? Well, I feel uncomfortable in general because unschooling especially in the last 15 years, has gone through this weird phase where you go to a conference and people would say, what do you mean by unschooling? <laughs> right. and, and that always bothered me. It's like, wait, for me, it was very simple because, and it still is. All right. I understand why people, definitions change, no doubt. But the original definition of unschooling is one I always go with. And that is what John Holt wrote, which is unschooling is he preferred the word over homeschooling because it refers to learning that doesn't have to take place at home mm. and it doesn't have to look like school. Simple, plain, straightforward, and does make a distinction between school and what he's proposing. But it's gotten so confused, you know, where people means, you know, because then it gets into this thing. And, and I remember going through this with the National Coalition of Alternative Community Schools in the in the mid 80s um, when they were, were getting more and more accepting of, of, of homeschoolers. And um, but they had this whole issue of coercion, you know. Yeah. And, uh, oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, parents could be much more coercive than than alternative educators. And I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> Uh, and then everyone gets, you know, this whole idea of coercion then became like, you know, are you coercing your your your, your child because, you know, you're asking them to, to stay, you know, to stay here while you go to the bathroom? <laughs> you know, right, it, right. It became these really weird thought experiments or sometimes they're actual actual incidents. And I was like, OK, but, you know, I don't mind that, you know, I think we have to have the big tent of unschooling or in homeschooling is probably the, the word because even John Holt stopped using the word unschooling when, um, you know, when he just realized that 
just like he gave up, didn't give up, but said he changed tack. And when children's rights didn't work, it didn't mean he didn't think children shouldn't have rights anymore. He says, I'm just ahead of the curve here. These people are not, it's not getting traction. What will get traction? Mm. His next book was Freedom and Beyond, where he tried the alternative schools. But he even talked himself out of that by the end of that book. Where he said, it's still not enough. You know, alternative schools are still soft jails instead of hard jails, but they're not what I'm talking about. And then instead of education, he called for the Underground Railroad to get children out of uh, compulsory schools. And that's where um, he learned about homeschooling and a year later started growing without schooling. Mm. And then the word homeschooling bothered him so much, he came up with the word unschooling. And by the way, that's because he didn't – he actually – I think the second issue makes a distinction between de-schooling, unschooling, and homeschooling, which is all like, you know, academic at this point. But and, and I spoke – and uh, Ivan Illich often tells the story too that he didn't like the word de-schooling. He didn't even come up with the title. It was his editor that came up with the title. And it was a reference to society, right, as the title, like de-schooling society, society which yes. is a bigger idea – you know, today it's it's sort of used on an individual level, like when a child wants to be free of public school or institutionalized school, and there has to be a kind of de-schooling process. That's the most common usage of it today. So just a right. period of basically decompression and resetting exactly. after being removed from the the expectations and the schedule of a public school. That's right. And and that has been very consistent. I've even heard, you know, a rule of thumb um, from the 80s, which I think is still true for every um, – for every year your child has been in school, it's going to take a month of, to de-school them out of it. Just lay, you know, leave them be. For you know, they got to get it. They got to get all that BS of, of what what's expected of them. You know, now that they're home, it's a different story. But they don't trust it, so they have to be de-schooled. So yeah, so you got de-schooling, unschooling, um, and John, of course, was taught, John Holt was always on about self-directed learning, even in um, how children learn, which came out in '68. I mean, you saw '67 or '68. He was talking about watching babies and, and infants and, and young toddlers. And this is self-directed learning. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and now, you know, and then um, he didn't use the phrase, but in the 80s, the phrase would sometimes come up, personalized learning. You know? And now all, but all of those phrase, all of them have been co-opted by the schools. Self-directed yes. learning means choosing a, a computer program you know, or an app. Personalized learning means sitting down with someone at a computer and either either having a live or a video recording, you know, mm-hmm. it's personalized because you made the mandatory selection from the, your prepackaged choices. Right. But I mean, that's hardly a real choice in my estimation. No, I just remember like the deliberation, like sitting there in front of this Google keyword tool going, okay, self-directed education or self-directed learning, you know, and this was just yeah. a process of, of trying to decide after, you know, not homeschooling, not unschooling. We like de-schooling, but the search volume is low. It was a frustrating experience on many levels. I but homeschooling probably had a high search volume. Homeschooling, yeah, but it's not, um, you know, specific enough, right? And it can uh-huh, be there. Right. There are a lot of people who would be searching for homeschooling who would come to my website, search around it for five minutes, and be horrified. You know, and I don't, and I, so, so there, that was another part uh, of this decision making process is I don't want to be drawing in people who are going to be disappointed or are going to bounce off the site right away. So trying to find this like magic keyword formula that was going to bring the right people to us. Um, now I kind of moved away from that idea and just like presenting, building a new site and saying like, look, this is very clearly who we are and what we do. And if it's for you, welcome. And if it's not, good luck. And so that's, that's where I'm working today. One more question about unschooling though. Mm-hmm. Didn't unschooling – I mean isn't that a very, very like hundreds of years old term that Absolutely. originally meant uh, somebody with a natural 
ability or like a natural, right? Yes, that's right. This I actually right. like. I like this. Right. It's like somebody would be an unschooled uh, right. musician, meaning exactly. that they had an ability to do it without having it forced on them in a certain that's way. That's right. So that's right. One more etymological question, and we can end with this. It's one of uh, my favorite things I've ever heard you discuss. The word education, the story of the word education. Mm -hmm. And again, I, this arose from a conversation with Ivan Illich. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I'm pretty sure he wrote this down too in, in, in a book. But for me, you know, when, when you meet with educators, they always, you know, they always say, you know, they're the leader because that's what educate means. It means to lead forth, mm. you know, and I'm going to take the, you know, I'm, and, and I'm going to take the substance that I find in you and draw it out. There's always this idea of, of them doing something to you. And then Illich pointed out to me that the Latin root is educare, mm -hmm. and that means to nourish, specifically to nourish from through breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And um, he said that, you know, in the early church iconography, you will often see statues or paintings where the um, the head of the monastery or the the saint that's portraying has breasts. It's, yeah, it's the milk of knowledge. I, I would love to find one of these icons, by the way. Illich did mention them. He said that they're around, but I, I've, I've yet to be to find a good a good photo to to support that. But anyway, what educari means is, yeah, it it means to pull forth, but it means the child is pulling out the milk from the mother. The child is getting the knowledge from the parent. It's not the parent giving it to them. It's it's a child drawing it forth. It's a mutual nurturing relationship. It's it's not this dominator subject relationship, master pupil. Right. You know? Right. And and so the idea that the child is the active again, it goes right. You know, it, it ties in so well with John Holt's ideas that the, it's the activity of the learner. You know, it's the act of of of, of breastfeeding that gives nourishment. It's not you know, it, and and the child has to participate in that. They can't be an unwilling participant. You know, and and I guess the old days they always had that idea of knowledge. That knowledge is something that you sought from somebody, and that you know you you gained from them. It wasn't something they pulled out of you, something you pulled out of them. Right. Yeah. Sandra, who I just talked to last week, she was saying, I'm not crazy about that word because, number one, it makes it kind of the noun, right? And education. It's right. finite. It's something that right. you go and get, but somebody already has it to give it to you, right? So, right. so what's happened in the co-opting of it is it goes from active learning, what you're describing, to being a kind of dispensary. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. That's losing its meaning. So right. I remember hearing you tell that story, and I, I just loved it. Mm -hmm. I forgot. <laughs> I don't know how I forgot the most shocking part of it, that, uh, the, of the church iconography. Um, <laughs> but we just plucked a handful of things out of a long outline that I wrote. So I hope I could have you back sometime in the future for another conversation. I really, really enjoyed talking to you, as I knew that I would. I hope we can do a, a part two sometime in the near future. We certainly can. I enjoyed speaking with you too, Brett. Can you just tell people in my audience if they're interested in finding more of your work or your projects uh, where they can go? Sure. The website is www.johnholtgws.com. 
GWS stands for the magazine John started in 1977 called Growing Without Schooling. And when he passed away, um, I continued publishing it for another 16 years until 2001. So it's got over 143 issues, over 6,000 pages of the history and development of homeschooling and unschooling in particular. Awesome. A lot of info there. Yep. I'll make sure it's linked in the show notes. Uh, there's lots of free resources there as well. So, Pat, thanks again. Uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Same here, Brett. Pleasure to meet you. And before we part ways today, if what you just heard is building your interest in helping us gain and maintain presence and continue to build the legacy of the School Sucks Project, you can become a supporting member of our community. There are links in the show notes, but the easiest and most options-filled way is to become a patron. It is patreon.com slash school sucks. We have several tiers of membership, but what we do here at School Sucks, value for value exchange. I first heard that term on another podcast I listened to called No Agenda, where people get value from the show and then they return value to the people who do the hard work of creating the show. What we've developed at School Socks, and I'm very proud of this, is the value for value and guess what more value exchange has that extra step in it. And what that is, is this. Most of our great work at this point is archived, and we also create content exclusively for our supporters. So when you send me the most important signal that I can receive that you find this show valuable, we exchange value, and then I give you access to a whole bunch of additional content, including a long list of educational archives that I believe is worth your time and attention. We also have an entirely private community. It's like our own little social media. It's called The University. And The University is a platform that I built a few years ago for a digital knowledge product called the Ideas Into Action Summit, which is a three-part training I think the whole thing is between 12 and 15 hours long, not counting bonus material, on how to acquire, assimilate, and present. So it's basically learning how to be a better learner, learning how to make sense of what you're learning, and learning to be more persuasive with those new powers. Uh, you can learn more about that at SSPUniversity, just spell that university.com. Also, for this specific Essential School Sucks endeavor, we have partnered with Praxis after I think I probably said Praxis on the show and praised their work, I don't know, 500 times. 
since first hearing about it seven years ago. But in short, Praxis is an alternative to the tracks we are put on headed towards college at a very, very young age. College for too many uh, thoughtful, entrepreneurial, and ambitious young people is becoming an enormous opportunity cost. And Praxis was the first really viable alternative I ever encountered. So linked in the show notes for this episode and right at the top of the homepage for schoolsucksproject.com, you can learn how or how your teen can skip college. And now a man who will certainly emerge from the Essential School Sucks collection as one of its all-stars, Isaac Morehouse. Isaac is the founder of Praxis, has a free book after helping hundreds of young adults succeed in the professional and entrepreneurial world without college. They're sharing some of their philosophy and strategies for doing that. So you can get the book for free. It's linked in the show notes and right at the homepage, schoolsucksproject.com. All right. See you soon.